and welcome to the Criminal Discourse Podcast. I'm Wendy. And I'm Trish. And we have a very full episode for you today. Buckle your seatbelts. We're going to kick it right off with some crime updates. Today's episode is going to be about the Hollywood Ripper, Michael Gargiulo. But before we dive into that serial case, Trish, give me some updates. So if you've been following the Sheila Keen Warren case out of Florida, it's still on hold. <laughs> she was, I think, the week of October 17th. They were to go to jury selection finally. I mean, she's been detained since 2017 when mm. she was arrested. And of course, COVID didn't help. That pretty much shut a lot of things down. But jury selection was to take place. Unfortunately, that has put it on hold because the defense has filed uh, motions because they weren't getting information from the prosecutor's office. What just came to light was that they have located a misplaced box of clown sightings around the time of the murder. Oh Apparently gosh. this box had over a dozen clown sightings in the area and maybe some citizen leads to this 1990 murder, which makes me ask, how many clowns run around Florida? <sighs> At a time, but <laughs> apparently they did. And so this box was turned over. And of course, they need more time to go through it. So jury selection is on hold for the Sheila Keen Warren case. And I know both you and I talked a little bit before the episode started about some really great documentaries mm. that are out right now that we've been watching season two of The Vow. Oh, out. It's good. It's the Nexium case. So watch season one if you haven't, because season two is all about the court cases. And you know me, I love trials and court cases. So yes. I'm all about that. So I've been watching that. And then the Kim Wall, the submarine case. Yes. Into the Deep is the documentary on that on Netflix. We covered that case, the submarine case out of Denmark, and it is good. It's an interesting viewpoint because it doesn't necessarily focus all on the murder. It focuses really on the lead up and the behind the scene footage, because apparently he was this amateur engineer who was building a rocket to go to space. So you see the people that he worked with and you see this documentary filmmaker had asked to film him prior to the murder. And so she has a lot of background footage and, and a lot of her video that she took was used in the trial. Yeah. And that I think the perspective in this documentary is what fascinates me the most is it it zooms out from just the perpetrator and the victim that you traditionally see and all the people close to their lives and how this case affected them as it unraveled. It's fascinating. It is a fascinating viewpoint. So watch it, check it out, listen to our podcast if you want to get some background on it before you do, but excellent. And uh, yeah, then there's The Watcher. Mm, spooky, spooky, spooky. <laughs> yeah, I have. It's on the queue. I have not watched it yet. I'll be honest. I fast tracked the new Unsolved Mysteries episodes before The Watcher. <laughs> so that's out there, too. And of course, we covered that creepy case. And that's a case where no one that we know of died. It's just a creepy, creepy case. I don't know any other way to describe it. It's like a psychological crime. almost. Like, yeah, psychological torture. Mm -hmm. I would say that. Yes. So on another update, our final update before we get started here, and this is from a while ago. If you guys remember Peter Chadwick, that was one of our rewind episodes Maddie and I did between the end of season one and beginning of season two. And this was the first episode we, we ever put out on Facebook. So the editing, I apologize in advance. It's rough. Bear with me. <laughs> But this was uh, Peter Chadwick had been on the run, I believe, since 2015. He is wanted for the murder of his wife in 2012, and they were hunting him all around the world. Well, he was in Mexico is where he was. And so with the help of U.S. Marshals and Mexican authorities, they did arrest him. Now, they arrested him a while ago. I believe he was arrested back in August of 2019. What made him so difficult to find being on the run so long is he had about a million dollars of cash on him oh, wow. at his disposal. But he worked. He apparently wanted to blend in. And he used, um, like was a busboy, worked in kitchens, I think taught English sometimes on the side, just so he could try to fit into the area. Area he was in and he was in a small town about an hour south of Mexico City. And he originally when he first went on the run stayed in very high fancy hotels. But the problem in Mexico, especially I didn't know this, they will go the federal authorities go to hotels and ask for the visas. 
of oh, people wow. living there. Like it, it's kind of common for American criminals to flee to Mexico, I guess. It's one of the main places, but they do this to make sure you're not, okay, you've come here on a vacation, let's say, but if you're there longer than, you know, you've been staying in this hotel or various hotels for a certain length of time, you better have a visa mm-hmm. and they want to see it. Mm-hmm. And if you don't have it, that's not a great place to stay. So <laughs> that he had gotten a private dwelling, I think, somewhere that he was off grid. But he was caught. This was back in 2019. So I apologize not getting to it sooner. Uh, he is in jail now for the murder of his wife. And uh, yeah, they caught him somewhat because he was still kind of keeping in touch with people he knew, too. And they were helping him in some ways. They don't say financial. They're not really saying, but they knew they would eventually catch him and they did. He is now where he should be. Good. Well, if you have any updates, case suggestions, feedback, comments, reviews, you liked it, you thought we could have done something different, please, you know, we assume it's nice stuff. (laughs) But We want to get to know you. We want to know what you're thinking about our podcast. You can always reach out to us at our website criminaldiscoursepodcast.com. We're also on Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, and Twitter, Criminal Discourse Pod, Criminal Discourse Podcast. You know how to use Google. You can find us. We're there. And leave us a message. Uh, We have some case suggestions from some folks on Facebook that we'll be getting to in the coming months, hopefully. And um, reach out. We love to hear from you. Yes, absolutely. All right, I'm ready for this case. <laughs> You're ready? I'm ready. I, I really struggled to chop this one down. So I will say we're not trying to trick you into getting to our website, but they're really, this is a resource-rich case. We have a timeline that I created as I was researching the case. It has a ton of extra details, specific dates, times, names, maps of the locations where these things happen that are kind of important. He was a stalker. He picked people that he lived extremely close to. And when you see the physical map, map of how close he was to these women, it really hits home what type of activities he was doing leading up to these murders. We also have a document that details the potential other cold cases that he's connected to with some links to other news articles if you want to take a deeper dive on those. So criminaldiscoursepodcast.com for the full write-up with resources. I have links, Trish, to the trial. They did some live footage. (laughs) I watched that. I I will admit I do it on like 1 Point seven five or two times speed to get through it sometimes. But this one was pretty fascinating. I will give you a trigger warning, though. If you watch the trial footage, they don't give you the whole trial. It's pretty much opening arguments and the closing arguments and the sentencing, but not a lot of the witness testimony. However, there are some moments where the person doing the camera work forgets that they're not supposed to show the crime scene photos. So there are a few flashes of that and they're a little graphic. So it was interesting to me. It is a deep dive. There is a lot of information there. If you have hours that you're like, let me do this, you will not be disappointed. Or you're like me and you don't have all those hours, but you do it anyway. So. Correct. <laughs> Let's get into it. So Michael Gargiulo, the Hollywood Ripper, you might not remember his name off the top of your head. He was known as the Hollywood Ripper for his killings in California, uh, his knife killings. He was also known as the boy next door killer because he lived so close to his victims. He was also known as the chiller killer for using his job as an air conditioning repairman to gain his victims trust and access to their homes. But I bet you do remember that case where Ashton Kutcher's date was murdered. Or you remember a few years ago how Ashton Kutcher testified at that killer's trial. That's how I knew about this case. Today, we're going to go beyond the celebrity aspect of the case and examine how Mike Gargiulo got away with murder for 15 years, even after his DNA turned up on one of his victim's fingernails, just within 10 years, starting with the woman who survived him and finally put him in handcuffs. So let's get it started. When 26-year-old Michelle Murphy got home from work on Monday, April 28th, 2008. She had her Santa Monica apartment to herself. No roommate, no boyfriend. She decided to do her laundry, exercise outside for a little bit, and watch a movie. Normal stuff. Before going to bed, she opened her living room window to let some fresh air in overnight, something we all do. Less than an hour later, Michelle woke suddenly as a serrated knife plunged into her chest. A man in a dark hoodie was straddling her, stabbing repeatedly at her arms and chest. She asked, why are you doing this? But he didn't respond. Michelle fought back. I grabbed at the knife. I was trying to hold the knife to get some leverage to keep it from stabbing me. She grabbed the blade of the knife with her bare hands. I brought my legs toward my chest to kick him off me. She was successful. 
Her attacker's arm slipped in the struggle, causing him to slash his own wrist. He immediately got off the bed, said, I'm sorry, and walked out of her apartment. Michelle survived the attack, but even today, she says, spending the night alone creates a world of fear in me. Investigators found an unknown male's DNA in blood mixed with Michelle's on her bedspread, fitted sheet, and in a trail that led from her bedroom, out her front door, and into the alley behind her apartment. The DNA matched 32-year-old Mike Gargiulo. Police had collected his DNA when Mike was a suspect in a 2001 murder, also in Los Angeles County. Mike was Michelle Murphy's neighbor, living in an apartment directly across the alley from her. The location afforded him multiple vantage points for observing Michelle's and anyone else's activities in and around her apartment. I just got to say, I don't care where you live. I live in an apartment. And after I researched this case, I got a lot tighter with my apartment security. Never mind also that he shared his apartment with his wife and her mother, lying and sneaking around. Those were habits that you're going to learn all of Mike's partners endured. Investigators learned that Mike had his eye on Michelle for some time. Michelle returned Mike's waves when he passed her in his work van, and once he walked over to try and strike up a conversation while she was exercising in their shared alley. Mike was co-owner of a plumbing business, and he once told an employee, she's hot, I'm going to get with her, after they encountered Michelle together. So he already was targeting her, other people noticed it, including Michelle. It would take more than a month for police to finally apprehend Mike Gargiulo. They believe he fled the crime scene in one of his work vans that was parked in front of his apartment building. Then he laid low. In the days after the crime, a friend saw Mike's hand in bandages. He told a co-worker he was thinking about moving to Mexico, as we said at the top of the episode, very common. Upon his arrest on June 8, 2008, so a little over a month later, officers noticed a healing wound consistent with Michelle's description of the attack. They eventually recovered his work vans, abandoned, cleaned, and emptied, but Mike had left all the physical evidence they needed back in Michelle Murphy's apartment. That physical evidence would not only lead to an arrest for Michelle's attack, but also for the murders of three other women going back 15 years. So what's important here is Mike Gargiulo is left-handed, and he had cut his right wrist while attacking Michelle Murphy, and that's how he left that significant amount of blood and DNA in her apartment. That blood matched a sample that officers collected from him back in 2001 when he was suspected of 22-year-old Ashley Ellerin's murder in Hollywood. Now, this is the one we're all probably more familiar with. This is the one connected with Ashton Kutcher, the actor. Mike was a suspect in this murder because of his suspicious behavior leading up to Ashley's murder. He lived in an apartment just a block away from her home, and her bedroom window was visible to him even at that distance. He lived in the apartment with his long-term girlfriend from Chicago, but he had two more girlfriends on the side. One would be the mother of his first child. None of them knew about the other relationships. In the fall of 2000, Mike, then 24 years old, first approached Ashley by offering to help fix a flat tire. He offered his services as a heating and air conditioning repairman, his current vocation, which Ashley accepted, and that gained him access to her home. So tip number one, I guess, is don't take repair services from someone you meet on the street. Call a business. <laughs> but he had a business. He was, he was self-employed. Yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. After that, Mike started showing up uninvited even crashing a birthday party Ashley was throwing for a friend and making her guests uncomfortable. He kept his eyes on her the whole time, they said. Ashley's roommates and friends noticed Mike parked in front of her home in the wee hours of the morning or watching her home from the dog park at night just across the street from her house. I couldn't find for sure if he had a dog or not, but either way, you don't go to the dog park in the middle of the night. <laughs> she did not have any roommates. She had one one roommate. There were constantly people going in and out of her home. It was like a party house almost. She always had at least one roommate and multiple guests all the time. One of these friends finally confronted Mike when they saw him parked in front of her house, but he gave an explanation. He said he wasn't stalking Ashley, just laying low because the police were after him. They were trying to obtain his DNA in connection with the murder of an ex-girlfriend in Chicago that he didn't commit. So that's what he said to seem less suspicious. And that wasn't to make this friend even more worried? Right. That was to make him comfortable. Oh, I'm not stalking Ashley. I'm just hiding from the police. For a murder. <laughs> For a murder of a girlfriend. Another time, Mike revealed a knife he kept in a sheath on his ankle, which obviously only concerned her friends more. 
Now, Ashley Ellerin, she was trusting, friendly, free-spirited, very spontaneous and optimistic, and she ignored her friend's warnings about Mike Gargiulo. He was fixing her furnace, and he had a girlfriend who was a doctor who wrote a prescription for her carpal tunnel syndrome, so he was kind of giving her some hookups. Ashley was used to attention from men. She was very pretty. She was dating celebrities. And in between her acting and fashion design classes, she was also a stripper in Las Vegas. And occasionally she slept with customers for extra cash. This is not me judging. You got to do what you got to do. It's Hollywood. The point is she was young. She was attractive, dating all kinds of people and was probably too naive to see the real danger that Mike was presenting. Ashley's former roommate, was especially persistent in warning her about Mike, but it also didn't have an effect. She probably thought I was being dramatic about it, he said. She knew how I felt. She didn't seem concerned. She was an amazing person who would make friends with everyone. So on Wednesday, February 21, 2001, Ashley was planning on going to dinner with actor Ashton Kutcher, then attending an after-Grammy party with him. Her property manager, Mark Durbin, arrived at her place to work on a few repairs beforehand. Now, he says that they had a blossoming relationship, and he offered up to police that the repair work had turned into a sexual encounter, and that he left Ashley's home in time to beat his girlfriend home, and Ashley was still alive and well. That's pretty suspicious. (laughs) Ashton, a little bit after this encounter, called Ashley's house to cancel their dinner plans and asked if he could pick her up later for just the after party. Ashley agreed, and she shared that she had just gotten out of the shower. I don't know for sure if she had just gotten out of the shower. She's, you know, kind of being flirty or what the deal is. But a few minutes later, a neighbor was walking his dog at the park across the street, and he heard two screams coming from Ashley's home. He didn't see anyone coming or going from the property, and he didn't investigate any further. It was around this time that police believe Ashley was attacked from behind with a knife. Her throat was cut from right to left, so as though by a left-handed person, and it nearly decapitated her. She was stabbed 47 times all around her head, neck, shoulders, back, chest, abdomen, and even her lower legs. One wound to her breast looked like the killer was attempting to cut it off completely. The stabs were so forceful that they penetrated her skull and actually pulled a piece out. Ashley had been rolled onto her back and posed with her fingers pointing to her groin. Even with the tremendous amount of blood, physical contact, and struggle in that very small space, her killer left no physical traces behind. Over the next hour, Ashley received calls from Ashton, her property manager, one of her friends, but she never picked up. Her roommate showed up around this time. She had forgotten her key, so she couldn't get in. Ashley's car was there and the lights were on, but the door was locked and Ashley didn't answer, so the roommate left. Ashton made it there shortly after the roommate. He also sees Ashley's car, the lights on inside. No one answers the door. He's yelling. No one responds. He calls Ashley from his cell phone. She doesn't answer that. He does look in two of the windows, and from one he sees a red stain, but he assumes that it's spilled wine. (laughs) And thinking, you know, that she's upset, he's already changed their plans. He's already like 45 minutes late from the changed plan. He thinks that she's blowing him off, so he leaves. Ashley's roommate returns the next morning. She now has a key, and that's when she discovers Ashley's body lying in a pool of blood in the hallway outside her bathroom. It was a scene so gruesome that even a decade later, a seasoned detective said, I still smell it. The whole crime scene is vivid in my head. Ashley was in her panties and bathrobe, her curling iron, hairdryer, and outfit nearby as though she was surprised in the middle of getting ready for her date. Police found a trail of bloody shoe prints and droplets leading from Ashley's body to the front door. So the droplets were to the left of the shoe prints, implying that the killer was holding a bloody knife in his left hand. And since the blood trail ended at the front door, they guessed that the killer was kind of looking out the front door, seeing when the coast was clear, and concealed all his bloody clothing and the murder weapon before he left her home. With no signs of forced entry, police assumed Ashley knew the killer and let him in, or that he had a key to the residence. So four people had keys to Ashley's home. Ashley, her current roommate, her former roommate, and the property manager, Mark Durbin. Mike Gargiulo also had access to the home, of course, when he worked on their furnace. And one of Ashley's friends recalled a disturbing incident when Mike had let himself into the home with a key when she and Ashley were there. Ashley's friend yelled at him to get out, and Mike made an excuse about checking the furnace and left. 
but Ashley didn't want to make a big deal about it. So it's possible that one of these times he entered her home uninvited, one of the parties working on her furnace, that he could have stolen a key, had a copy made, and now had a key to her residence. And at that time, do we know when that occurred prior to her murder? Because I would be changing those locks. Like, he had a key to get in. Yes. They did not change the locks. Let me look at the timeline. (laughs) That is true. And check out the timeline. (laughs) It's in the timeline. I believe it was... Oh, I don't think I do have it on the timeline. I know fall of 2000 is when he first started interacting with Ashley. And then February of 2001 is when she was murdered. So it was in between probably that winter of 2000 into 2001 is when that incident occurred. But yeah, the next move is change the locks. But yeah, she didn't. Mark Durbin, the property manager, didn't. We didn't want to make a big deal about it. But it was the helpfulness of Ashley's forthcoming friends, including the immediate cooperation of her love interests, which had, you know, Mark Durbin's information that he provided to police that they had just slept together right before she was murdered. He didn't have to offer that to police. That was critical in narrowing law enforcement's focus onto Mike Gargiulo. An investigator's instincts and a fortuitous phone call would soon make him their prime and pretty much only suspect. Los Angeles County Detective Tom Small, he was consumed with tracking down Mike Gargiulo for questioning. He was convinced that he probably did it, but he at least had something to do with Ashley Ellerin's murder. But finding him wasn't easy. Mike changed residences, jobs, and vehicles frequently, and his leases and utilities were always in his numerous girlfriend's names, not his own. So Detective Small was shocked when he received a call from Cook County Police out in Illinois, halfway across the country, asking about Mike Gargiulo. Cook County had just tested fingernail swabs from the unsolved murder of Trisha Picaccio in 1993. They obtained a DNA profile and were now working through the list of people they interviewed to collect DNA samples for comparison. They knew that Mike Gargiulo, their prime suspect, had moved to Los Angeles County and they wanted Detective Small's help getting a hold of him. And this was all back around the time of Ashley's murder in 2001. Yes. So he's wanted by the Chicago authorities for questioning in a murder. Mm -hmm. He's telling the friend of Ashley's before she's murdered, hey, I'm not stalking. I'm just hiding out from the police because guess what? That's a true story, apparently. Mm -hmm. And now he's a main suspect in Ashley's murder in 2001. Yes. Prime suspect in two murders under your belt already before you hit 30. But he wasn't arrested till 2008. Bingo. We got some more coming. On Friday, August 13, 1993, we're going to go back in time here a little bit. 18-year-old Trisha Picaccio was just two days away from leaving for her freshman year of college. Again, another thing you're going to find in, in these cases with Mike Gargiulo is these prime windows of opportunity to get his victims. This was the last time Trisha was going to be around. That night, she and about 40 other recent graduates of Glenview South High School, which is the same high school Mike Gargiulo went to, they attended a party that served as a final hurrah before everyone left for college. She had a scholarship to Purdue University. Impressive where she planned to major in engineering, even more impressive. Trisha was popular, active in extracurriculars. A former teacher remembers her as an outgoing, beautiful, wonderful child. She was also very trusting, loving, and happy. And she knew what she wanted out of life and seemed to have the energy to go get it. Mike Gargiulo was 17 at the time. And he was a very close friend of Doug Picaccio, who is Trisha's younger brother. So because of this... They, Mike Gargiulo is at the house very often. He only lived a block away from the Picaccios. And the Picaccio parents remember Mike as a shy and very quiet kid, kind of in the background, never boisterous. He didn't raise any kind of red flags. Doug and Mike were on the football team together. Mike was very athletic. And while the two of them were good friends, Doug did admit that Mike had a violent temper that erupted suddenly. He saw it. He had actually seen Mike, quote, savagely beat up classmates without provocation. So not a red flag that everyone saw, but some people knew him to be this way. The families were living in Glenview, Cook County, Illinois, which is a middle to upper class suburb north of Chicago. That Friday night, August 13th, Mike was spending time with his girlfriend. This is the same girlfriend who would follow him to California. She was a long term girlfriend and a few of their friends. He said at one point that he was feeling sick. And he left the group early while they were still watching rented movies. He got home in time to see Trisha return home. So she got home about an hour after he did from her party. Her perch light was on. Her family was all asleep inside. Everyone was home. There was a party going on in the house across the street from hers. She parked her car 
She made her way to the door, and an attacker surprised her along the way. He twisted and broke her left arm from behind. And the, the way that they describe it, it would have taken an incredible amount of force to break and strength to break her arm the way that he did. He stabbed her 12 times in the chest, left arm, breasts, abdomen, and back. He left her on the front walkway to bleed to death, and he disappeared back into the night completely unnoticed. Trisha's father discovered her body the next morning. Also the next morning, Mike Gargiulo called his girlfriend in tears to tell her that Trisha had been murdered. He was very affected by this. Mike would tell his good friend Scott Olson how he was at the Picaccio's house most of that day, observing all the crime scene activity. Scott questioned this, and Mike was kind of like, well, how could you miss it? There's cars everywhere. Scott also told investigators about Mike's crazy switch. When he really wanted something, he was going to get it one way or the other, Scott explained. He flipped the switch and all emotions gone. After Trisha's murder, Mike brought her mother flowers. He bought her father a nice shirt. He gave them restaurant gift certificates and brought them Easter lilies the following year. The gift giving went on for months and it was strange because Mike was the only one bringing them presents and he had never done that before. They didn't have that kind of relationship with him. Meanwhile, as kind as he was being to the murder victim's family, police had to compel Mike to sit down to an interview with him. He was not cooperating. When he finally did talk to police, he told them that a friend had asked him to hide a gym bag after Trisha's murder, implying that it contained the murder weapon, a knife. And that lead was a dead end. So he's throwing a friend under the bus. Mike also reported to police that his friend and Trisha's brother, Doug, threatened him. What really happened was that Mike had asked Doug if he would want to kill the person who hurt his sister, and Doug said yes. So Mike interpreted that as a threat. In 1998, Mike showed up. So this is five years after the murder. Mike showed up at the Picaccio's acting like he had something to tell Trisha's parents. And if you watch television specials about this, they really believe he was about to confess to her murder. But some of Mike's family members came over and interrupted him before he said anything. And then shortly after that is when he followed his oldest brother to Los Angeles, California, thousands of miles away. And this, we presume, was to escape police scrutiny. By 1999, Mike Gargiulo had gotten a role as a boxer in a student film, and he worked as a doorman at a club on the Sunset Strip. He was fired from that job for assaulting a patron. Mike's old friends and co-workers explained that he never had a problem with women, at least with getting them, and he always seemed to have multiple girlfriends. He was six foot two, reasonably attractive, kind of an average guy, and athletic. Mike met his girlfriends in online chat rooms, through web dating services, and at work, bars, and clubs. He fathered two children and was married once. His romantic partners do recount a lot of problems. He was a liar, he had odd habits like being out all night, and he was physically and sexually abusive. Co-workers and friends of victims who encountered Mike remember that he could be withdrawn, quiet, and standoffish, but also a braggart. And childhood friends remember his sudden aggressive outbursts. They all knew he carried knives and that he was skilled in using them. Los Angeles County police would learn that Mike utilized his social charms and planted seeds of truth in his stories, often borrowing details from people close to him and embellishing them to fit his current persona. He was kind of a braggart and a BS artist, they said. He would meet and befriend and associate with these women and form a superficial relationship with them, and ultimately, they would end up dead. He's every woman's nightmare. Before investigators had narrowed in on Mike Gargiulo as a suspect in Ashley Ellerin's 2001 murder, they felt the perpetrator had to have personal knowledge of her life and activities, lived near her, and had been stalking her. Mike lived with an eye or earshot of all his victims, and in some cases had reason to enter their homes, and he was witness stalking most of them prior to the attacks. Police did finally apprehend Mike in December 2002. So remember, Detective Small in Los Angeles and those Cook County investigators were hunting him down. December 2002 is when they finally got him. And although he fought it aggressively, physically fought the police, they were able to collect a blood sample from him. It wouldn't be until September 2003, a full 10 years after Trisha Picaccio's murder, that Mike's DNA that they collected was matched to the DNA on her fingernails. Do we know why it took so long? I think it was a technology issue. So they had the DNA, they had the genetic material from her fingernails in 1993, but till they finally tested it, till they had enough technology to pull a full profile, and then tracking him down was also an issue. 
And unfortunately, even with this DNA match, so now we have his DNA on Trisha's fingernails, it didn't lead to an arrest. Not in Los Angeles, not in Cook County. Police in Los Angeles County couldn't arrest Mike because there was no physical evidence connecting him to Ashley Ellerin's murder. There was no physical evidence of the killer in that house. And they didn't have the jurisdiction to charge him with Trisha's murder in another state. Detective Small still applauds the Cook County detectives, saying they actually went back over this stuff and did everything they could. It was the state's attorney's office that is not filing. So Cook County refused to file charges because the medical examiner used the same cotton swab on top of and underneath Trisha's fingernails. So if Mike's DNA was present on top of her fingernails rather than underneath them, which it was now impossible to tell, then it was feasible that his DNA was transferred via casual contact. So touching, hugging, things like that. And they argued that that was plausible since Mike was at the Picasso's home so often. The problem with that is that Trisha interacted with dozens of her friends and family in the hours leading up to her death, including her boyfriend, holding hands, hugging, kissing. Yet the only DNA recovered from her entire body, let alone her fingernails, was her own and Mike's. And what's more, the mix of DNA on her fingernails was a 50-50 mix between Trisha and Mike, making it even less likely that Mike's DNA got there through just a casual transfer like holding hands. And Detective Small went on to say that, quote, in totality of the circumstances and physical evidence out here, we would prosecute it. Frankly, I think it's a bunch of shenanigans, but it's not my say. I love it when someone uses shenanigans. He says the state's attorney's office must, quote, answer to the Picachios on why they aren't moving on it, and not just to the Picachios, to all of Gargiulo's other alleged victims and their families and friends. Because of Cook County's reluctance to prosecute, in September 2003, 27-year-old Mike Gargiulo was a free man. The girlfriend Mike was living with at the time, she kicked him out around this same period, but it wasn't because of the investigation. She had no idea what was going on. The relationship turned sour because Mike asked her for a loan, she refused, and he punched her. He threatened to kill her after that, bragging that he had enough forensic knowledge to get away with it, which he's probably thinking, I totally can get away with it now. And she filed a restraining order because he began stalking her after she broke up with him. But he wasn't single for very long. And in 2005, Mike, now 29, moved to an apartment in Almonte, still in California, Los Angeles County, with a new girlfriend who was pregnant with his second child. She complained that Mike became physically abusive, stayed up all night, and would come and go at all hours. She even said at trial that she was unsure at one point if Mike still lived in the apartment with her because he was never home when she was. And she suspected him of cheating on her. And of course he was. For six months in 2005, Mike dated a woman named Yadira Reyes. And on their last date, Mike forced her into the back of his work van and raped her. When he dropped her off at home, Mike threatened her, telling her that he memorized her work schedule and he would hurt her and her family if she reported what happened. Yadira kept her silence until 2015 when her aunt saw photos of her circulating on the news in connection with Mike's murder trial. We have a link to those photos in the show notes. It's basically stuff police found on his computer where she doesn't look like they're kissing, but it doesn't look like she wants to be kissing him. And I think People Magazine may have done a spread on like, who is this woman? We're just, we hope she's alive, but we don't know who she is. Bingo. Police, they were concerned that Yadira was another victim. And she was, but she wasn't a murder victim, fortunately. Mike's girlfriend, while she was about to have the baby, she decided to move out of their shared apartment over the physical abuse, the lying, the cheating over Thanksgiving weekend 2005. This was just days before another woman was murdered in the same apartment complex. When Mike's girlfriend asked him about the murder afterward, he started relating personal details about the 32-year-old victim, Maria Bruno, intimate information about her life and routines. But she'd only been living there for 10 days, and Mike was never home. <laughs> and these were details like the fact that she was an El Salvadorian immigrant. She had four children. She had just left her abusive husband. He also went on saying that he thought Maria was gorgeous, and he especially mentioned her breasts. 
Not something you do to the mother of your child. Well, you shouldn't. (laughs) A neighbor also remembered Mike once commenting, that's how I like him, thin with large breasts, as Maria walked by them. Mike also told his girlfriend how he had helped Maria carry her groceries into her apartment, but a neighbor remembered it differently. He saw a man who looked like Mike staring into Maria's apartment trying her door, and once trailing her into her apartment when she was unloading groceries. She went into the apartment and he followed her in, he told police. The minute he stepped over the threshold, he backed out and the door was shut in his face. Another neighbor recalled Mike doing something similar to her. He showed up at her apartment, asked to borrow something, then followed her inside uninvited when she went to retrieve it. I'm honestly a little mad at the male neighbor who sees another neighbor just staring into someone's apartment and not intervening. You should definitely say something when that happens. On Wednesday, November 30th, 2005, Maria Bruno met up with her estranged husband, Irving Bruno, for a date. They spent several hours out together eating, drinking, and talking. Maria was too impaired to drive home, so Irving drove her back to her apartment. They had sex, and Maria, still intoxicated, fell asleep afterward. Irving covered her up, dressed, and left her apartment about 2.45 a.m. Sometime after he left, Maria's killer entered her apartment by slicing the screen of her kitchen window and climbing through. So very similar to Maria, or not Maria, Michelle Murphy. He stabbed her while she was lying in bed, inflicting 17 deep wounds to her neck, chest, abdomen, left arm, and left leg. He effectively ripped out Maria's throat in the process. Post-mortem, he cut off her breasts, and he attempted to remove her breast implants. He placed one breast in her mouth and the other next to her head before he escaped back out the kitchen window. Maria's blood droplets led from her bed to the kitchen. Again, similar to Ashley Ellerin, they think that the killer stashed his bloody clothing and knife before exiting back out. So Irving Bruno returned to his estranged wife's apartment the next morning to pick her up for work. She didn't answer the door. Irving notices this kitchen window screen is missing, so he crawls in the open window and discovers her mutilated and exposed body. It's lying face up in a pool of blood. He did remove her breast from her mouth before calling 911. Police found a three-pack of knives on Maria's kitchen floor with the chef's knife missing. The chef's knife was never recovered, and it's believed that that was the murder weapon. Police also locate a blue shoe covering, or like a booty, uh, with Maria's blood on it outside her apartment. They find an unknown male's DNA profile on the elastic band that would have gripped the ankle. It's not a match to Irving Bruno, and they don't get a match in the database. So police began pulling each resident's criminal history, and nobody appeared to have a serious arrest record. I find that troubling. Mike Cardullo has restraining orders, an assault record, robbery, theft. It's There's numerous things in the timeline. He seems like a pretty serious record to me. They interviewed neighbors, but Mike Cardullo was never available, and he didn't respond to cards left at his apartment. So he was never interviewed. The other thing that troubles me about this is this is a gated apartment complex. You needed a key or a code to get in. And his apartment is a direct line of sight to hers right across the pool. And they just, they left it go. They never interviewed him. They didn't follow up with Mike until 2008, three entire years later, after they matched his DNA from Michelle Murphy's attack to the profile they found outside Maria Bruno's apartment on that blue booty, the shoe covering. Over the years, girlfriends, customers, and coworkers had observed Mike wearing those same shoe coverings on his repair jobs. Now, it's believed that Mike would wear those coverings to either protect his shoes during an attack or to prevent trailing blood evidence outside of his victims' homes. But Mike left very little physical evidence behind. I don't want to say it's impressive and give him credit, but the circumstantial case against him, on the other hand, was phenomenal. The biggest factor to consider was the extreme coincidence that Mike could live in such close proximity to all four women at the time of their attacks. That just doesn't happen. A judge summed it up well when he said, quote, in this case, everywhere that Mr. Gargiulo went, death and destruction followed. Beyond that, and beyond the specific ways Mike Gargiulo is connected to each victim and crime scene, there are overwhelming similarities in the way each attack occurred. All the victims were young, attractive women, and they were very petite, around five feet tall and thin. Maria Bruno is described as like 90 pounds. So these are all physically vulnerable women. Prior to the attacks, Mike expressed sexual attraction toward each victim, but none of the victims were sexually assaulted, which I also found strange, or at least unique. Was the sexual act itself plunging the knife into them and killing them? Yes, 
I think that the penetrative knife was the proxy. He did use a knife in every attack, stabbing the women around their neck and breasts numerous times. The breasts seemed to be the focal point. He left deep wounds in a similar pattern. Deep, deep wounds. Responding officers and medical examiners often describe the attacks as angry, aggressive, rage-filled. It was a level of violence that they said is really rare to see in real life. It's depicted in movies, but not something they see. Mike also posed or mutilated each of his victims' bodies afterward. It seemed like he wanted people to see what he had done. Police never recovered a murder weapon in any of the cases. And given the nature of the crime, the amount of blood at each scene, it's remarkable that Mike almost never left physical evidence behind either, just that shoe covering and then his own blood when he cut himself at Michelle Murphy's apartment. During an undercover investigation when Mike was in prison, he alluded to a practice of discarding evidence in dumpsters or at dumps in other towns. So he had a method for it. He never stole from his victims, and the timing and location of his attacks made random robbery gone wrong or attacked by a stranger incredibly unlikely. All the women were ambushed in or around their homes at night in a densely populated area, often in a very narrow window of time when they were alone, either right before or after bedtime or right after being with someone. That's kind of his MO too. He has two cases where he comes in right after another man has left the apartment. These were high-risk attacks, implying that Mike planned his attack ahead of time, waited for the perfect opportunity to strike, and then was confident in his ability to get away with it. Mike told his girlfriends that he studied forensics, and he knew how to get away with murder. He provided details to them about how he would destroy evidence and change his signature if, if I did it. Police found a program on his computer called Evidence Eliminator. One girlfriend recalled him frequently reading the Anarchist Cookbook, and that includes a section on knife attack techniques, very similar to what Mike used in the murders, especially how to surprise and silence your victim immediately. Furthermore, Mike talked openly to many acquaintances about his DNA connection to Trisha Picaccio's murder, but always claimed that he was being framed, except to two people. And this would be very important in bringing some justice to the Picaccio family. The bragging about this DNA connection, running from the police, getting away with murder, it would all catch up to him in 2011 when an awesome episode of CBS's 48 Hours, love that show, Love it. they covered Mike Gargiulo's crimes. It explained why he hadn't been charged in Trisha Picaccio's murder. Two of his former club co-workers recognized him on the show and came forward with a tip. They referred to Mike as Mr. Storyteller and thought he was just joking or trying to one-up them when he confessed to Trisha's murder. His co-workers were swapping stories about their criminal pasts when Mike chimed in that he had killed a girl back home, left her dead on her doorstep, and was too crafty to be caught. With these additional witness statements, on July 7, 2011, Cook County State Attorney finally charged Mike Gargiulo with Trisha Picaccio's murder, eight years after they matched the DNA. But in this case, justice delayed feels more like justice denied. Considering that Mike was the prime suspect in Trisha's murder so early on and how many women he was able to victimize after Cook County's inaction, Trisha's mother summed it up best when she said, I don't know why they didn't put him in jail. I just don't understand it. These girls could have been alive. Mike Gargiulo successfully delayed his Los Angeles County trial until 2019. So he's arrested in 2011, can charge with murder. So we were talking at the top of the episode about case delays. He did this for eight years, more than eight years, while negotiating his legal representation. Trial experts diagnosed Mike with antisocial personality disorder and dissociative identity disorder during this process. And he didn't take that well. He didn't believe that he had a mental illness, said one psychologist. He was upset that I was pursuing this. He said I was a liar. He actually stopped talking to the court psychologist after that. So experts turned to Mike's family and his school records to complete their evaluations. And they discovered that despite his average intelligence, Mike had been in special education classes from age 10 until graduation because of poor emotional regulation, disruptive behaviors. A former teacher at Mike's high school remembered him as being, quote, a little off the wall. Mike had been hospitalized for dissociative episodes as a child, but his parents didn't follow up on recommended psychotherapy. Mike's father disclosed that all seven of his children have been treated for psychiatric conditions, (laughs) including I'm not laughing. It's just it's phenomenal that you find one family with this much and they don't treat it, including 
bipolar disorder, depression, anxiety, post-traumatic stress disorder, and schizophrenia. Did the parents have any mental health? There has to be a family history of this. Something has to be. So the mother died in 2006. So we don't have any information from her. The father, just the fact that he was so forthcoming with all of this tells me something. But yeah, there has to be there has to be family history here. The father and siblings also admitted to severely abusing Mike during his childhood. This included being hit in the head with objects like golf clubs and baseball bats, being hogtied and secluded in his basement closet for two or three days at a time, and the siblings would participate in this with the parents. He would also have his hands held over the open flame of the stove. They all felt that Mike was the weak link in the family, and he was targeted, and his siblings maintained an attitude of better him than me, and they would blame Mike for things they did to avoid punishment. They admitted this. Was he the youngest? He was... I think he was not quite the youngest. He wasn't a middle child, but not quite the youngest. His father described him as being very emotional. He thought he was needy. He called him a sissy a lot. Just a weaker boy compared to the other sons. And all of this information, again, it came from Mike Gargiulo's family members. He said he didn't remember it. None of Mike's family supported him at trial. Except, remember, he had two children, and his 16-year-old, the oldest son, did come to trial and ask that his father be spared the death penalty. That was the only family member who came. So Mike's defense team argued that all of that childhood abuse was the catalyst behind his dissociative identity disorder onset. That makes sense. But that he's capable of acting violently today when triggered. And that was their explanation for his attack on Michelle Murphy, that something had triggered a dissociative episode, caused him to attack her, and he didn't snap out of it until he cut himself. Prosecutors dismissed this idea emphasizing Mike's careful planning and actions prior to the attack. Also, you're not excused from almost murdering someone because you were having a psychotic episode. In Ashley Ellerin and Maria Bruno's murders, Mike's attorneys argued third-party culpability, pointing the finger at Ashley's property manager, Mark Durbin, and Maria's husband, Irving Bruno. Both men were extremely cooperative with investigators, no evidence connects them with the murders, and I think here, if it had just been one of these, he could have possibly gotten away with it, but it was this pattern of of picking another culprit. As far as his DNA ending up on Trisha Picaccio's fingernails the night she was murdered, Mike said, DNA does not prove that someone, somebody committed a crime. DNA just pretty much says that the person was present or could have been present. He went on, I'm 100% innocent. This is a real nightmare that I'm living. Personally, I feel and know 100% that I don't deserve this. Everything good about me and the fair person that I am is not even out there. And that's just wrong. I'm emphasizing because he's using a lot of flowery language. This is BS. Mike was also known to tell his friends that if you ever get caught for something, you should quote, lie, lie, lie until you die. And that's what he's doing. A Los Angeles County jury delivered guilty verdicts for Michelle Murphy's attack Maria Bruno's murder, and Ashley Ellerin's murder. Mike Gargiulo was sentenced to death. During the trial's penalty phase, five more additional victims came forward to testify about what Mike had done to them. One was the former girlfriend we talked about who Mike raped in 2005. There was a Suzanne C. and an unnamed victim who also testified that Mike had raped them. An Ashley G. testified that Mike had entered her Beverly Hills apartment uninvited and held a knife to her throat when she was just 16 years old. And another unnamed victim testified that Mike had assaulted her too, but I don't have those details. Investigators believe Mike Gargiulo is responsible for more murder victims, perhaps as many as 10, although they haven't publicly linked him to any cold cases. Since Mike traveled regularly between Illinois and California, they believe he could have attacked women in other states. I researched some unsolved knife murders in the areas he did live. I have a link to his possible address history in the show notes. And I found five cases that shared major similarities to the four known victims' cases. Whether they're connected or not, these victims deserve justice too. They are also in the show notes in detail with some additional links that you can research. They are all mostly younger women who were killed in their homes overnight, stabbing death. One that was remarkable was someone who was killed in a bedroom 
with their two younger siblings still asleep, still in bed, were not even woken up when the stabbing happened. Crazy things. So as Mike Gargiulo still asserts he is 100% innocent, he is going to face another trial for Trisha Picaccio's murder out in Cook County, Illinois. In the meantime, it's unlikely that California will carry out that death penalty sentence. The state's governor ordered a moratorium on the death penalty since Mike's sentencing, and they haven't executed a prisoner since 2006. There were already more than 700 death row inmates in California prior to Mike, making it even less likely that he's going to be executed. So go watch some trial. <laughs> go, go watch that. For, I do have the link too. It's not the original 48 hours special, but it's the updated one in 2012 called The Boy Next Door 48 Hours Mystery. That's an excellent program of all of the media out there. That's linked in the show notes. In addition to the other resources, if you would like to dig deeper into those. It is a lot. He's a big piece of garbage <laughs> that, that got away with it. For a lot of years. I think the frustrating part about this is, and really the hero of this story is Michelle. Yeah. Because she fought so hard. I don't believe he snapped out of it and was like, oh, I'm sorry. Absolutely not. But she saved not only herself, but she saved how many other women from being victims of rape and or murder by this guy. Mm -hmm. And the frustrating part is it took so long to get him when you had a DNA match. How many cases do we cover where people are charged, convicted on less than that with no DNA? And here we had DNA. And then he went on to murder at least one other woman. Michelle Murphy had to go through what she had to go through just to bring this guy to justice. That gets me. So I don't know. I don't have positive feelings about Cook County right now either after all that. that's There has to be some reason you would think that kept them from pulling the trigger on that. But it's it's really hard to swallow that they didn't make an arrest based on that at that time. That's tough. Okay. Well, that was a good case. Okay. Thank you. That was a deep dive. Yeah. Check out the website. Guys, there's so much information there. There are the maps. There's the possible other victims that are out there that aren't necessarily in Los Angeles. I think I saw one from Illinois is on there mm-hmm. also. It is It is a deep dive and a lot of work. Hats off. It is a sad, as all of our cases are, a sad case. I think you've done uh, justice to these victims and hopefully bring some attention to the ones that haven't been connected to him. I hope so. And if nothing else, at night, close your blinds. Do not leave. Do not let people see into your home. Change your routines. Avoid the Mike Gargiulos of the world if you can. And if you see a Mike Gargiulo out there, don't let him fly by. Say something, intervene, throw up the red flags too. Stop people like this. All right, everybody. Thank you so much for tuning in. We hope you've enjoyed this episode. If you have, let us know. You can reach out to us, like Wendy said at the beginning, through all those social media contacts, even our own contact page on our website. All right, as always, if you see something, say something, just like Wendy got done saying, if you see someone hanging around that shouldn't be there and you don't want to confront them, I get it. You don't know people nowadays, perhaps warn your neighbor, call them, say, hey, this guy's been uh, standing outside in front of your place for a a while now, or notify the police, or if you have a neighborhood watch, notify them. But if you see something, say something. You might have that missing piece of the puzzle it takes to solve the crime, like the two gentlemen that he worked with at the club that were swapping crime stories, and he's like, no, I killed her. And they came forward to give that just to tighten up that circumstantial case. So until next time, guys, let's all be safe out there. Enjoy these upcoming holiday seasons here in Pennsylvania. We're finally getting our fall like weather, which I love. Let's look out for one another, but let's also be kind to one another. Bye. Bye.